I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the director here at Long Now, and I want to say uh, thanks to uh, Will and Margaret Hurst for uh, funding the, the media part of this, along with Fora TV, uh, as well as Ignite and uh, Cameo Woods' upcoming movie, Real Artists, coming out in January. Uh, so, thank you all. Um, I have wanted to have David Eagleman do this talk ever since I saw it at this, uh, this small, super geeky conference about time in Pasadena several years ago. Um, and I noticed that uh, not too long ago, he, he published the work. Originally, it was, it was the very early part of the experimental data on this. Uh, and now it's, it's, it's been published. So I'm really excited that, uh, that we can get an update on it. David Eagleman is one of the more recent uh, board members uh, that we have, and uh, he just recently moved uh, from uh, the Baylor Baylor School of Medicine, right? Yes, uh, and uh, to here, um, he's now working at Stanford as well as some of his own projects. He's now local to the Bay Area, so hopefully we'll um, rope him into even more things, but he had a talk in Colorado yesterday and flew back special uh, to make sure that he could make this. Um, we have a lot of chairs up here because actually uh, there's there's Two other phases of the of the talk tonight. Uh, David's going to give his talk on the way the brain uh, builds its now, and what some of those implications are. Then Danny Hillis and Stuart Brand are going to join him. Uh, you guys three in the center there. Um, for a discussion on how we kind of extrapolate that out and maybe some of the ramifications around the long now. And then uh, I will interrupt them at some point. Um, and th there'll also be question cards going around. You guys are welcome to uh, to do question cards, and those will come up to, to Stuart to keep that discussion going. And then we're going to welcome all the board members that are present here. And uh, please keep those questions going. And it's going to be an AMA. So we have, uh, you know, if there's any one board member that you want to ask a question to or, uh, or to the group about what's going on with Long Now, we really encourage you to send those questions up to us. Uh, and to introduce David more fully, I'm just going to run this movie. This is the story of how your life shapes your brain and how your brain shapes your life. For the past 20 years, I've been trying to understand how what happens in three pounds of jello-like material somehow becomes us what we feel, what matters to us, our beliefs and our hopes, everything we are happens in here. There are a hundred billion neurons in the human brain. And each one of these is sending tens or hundreds of electrical pulses to thousands of other neurons every second of your life. And somehow, 
all of this activity produces your sense of reality. Imagine taking your laptop and tearing out half the motherboard and expecting it to still function. It would never work with a computer, but it can work with a young brain. The brain doesn't forget how to move the arm, even right. though it hasn't moved in, in 10 years. And grass. What happens when we encounter something unexpected? Orange. Green, blue, red, <laughs> blue. <laughs> that was amazing. We're not fixed. From cradle to grave, we are works in progress. How many of you, by show of hands, have had a life-threatening situation where things seem to take a very long time? Okay, okay, it's almost 80% of you, that's, that's amazing. So, so this happened to me when I was younger. I was um, climbing around on a roof top of a house under construction, and there was tar paper at the edge, and I didn't realize that that was the edge because it was sticking out. So I stepped on that, and I fell off of the roof, and uh, I fell all the way to the ground below, and um, the thing that struck me is that it took a very long time. It seemed to take a very long time. So I was thinking about all my different options. I was thinking about how I might be able to grab for the tar paper as I was falling, and then I realized that was too late. So I was looking down at the ground, and I had a total calmness, and I was watching the brick floor come towards me. And what I was thinking about was, was Alice in Wonderland and how this must have been what it was like for her to fall down the rabbit hole. And so the thing that struck me before the ground struck me was how, <laughs> was how long the whole thing seemed to take. So then what happened is um, I grew up more. I was eight years old at the time that that happened, and I, I uh, took high school physics, and I learned D equals one-half AT squared, and I calculated how long that fall actually took, and I was surprised that the whole thing took 0.8 of a second. The whole fall from top to bottom was less than a second. And that really surprised me because it seemed like the whole thing had lasted much longer. Um, so I grew up and I became a neuroscientist so that I could try to figure out what was going on here. And I've devoted a large part of my career to, to trying to figure out these sorts of experiences and what's happening with, uh, with time. And essentially, what, you know, what I realized along the way is that all of our perceptual experiences pushed through this filter of, of the way that we perceive reality. And it doesn't necessarily map onto what reality actually is. And, and what I've found is that time is not something that is passively tracked by the brain, but it's actively constructed by it. And so that's the thing I want to tell you about today. So, so time is, is the most common noun in the English language, and we worry about whether we have enough of it and, and how we spend it, and on a, 
on a day like today. We invest it, we covet it, we trade it, um, we equate it to money. And so it's one of the most important elements in our lives, but it's also one of the least understood because you can't touch it or taste it or feel it. Um, and so what I realized is we had all these questions about, about time. Why, um, why does time seem to slow down when you're scared? And, and uh, why does it seem to speed up as you get older? So tonight what I want to do is take you on a, a quick journey through, um, through my career in time and, and what surprises we've discovered about how the brain perceives time. So to get into something as big and mysterious as time, what I want to do is start with a very simple visual illusion. So this is called the flash lag effect. And if you fix on the red square, you'll see this green circle moving around. And what's happening is that there's a flash that's occurring in the middle of the green ring, but it doesn't actually look as though the flash is happening in the middle. Again, if you fixate on the red square, you should be able to see clearly that it looks like the flash is kind of lagging behind. So what this means is that even though on the left here, that's what's hitting your retina, what you perceive is something more like what's happening on the right. So why does this happen? So when I started looking at this uh, some years ago, there was a paper in the literature on it, and it suggested the following. It said, look, maybe what happens is as things are going through time, an event occurs, like the flash where the arrow is, the small arrow, and what you're doing is you're guessing ahead. You're guessing ahead where the moving object is going to be. So I thought about that, and I actually had some reasons to doubt that explanation, and so I set up a very simple experiment, which was the following. I had the ring come around, and a flash happens in the middle of the ring, like you just saw, and the ring continues, just like you saw. Or randomly interleaved uh, a, a different condition is that the ring comes to a stop or the ring reverses direction at the moment of the flash. So the thing to note is that everything up to and including the flash is identical and the only thing I'm changing is what happens in the future of the flash. I'm changing either it goes that way or it stops or it goes that way. It's the only thing I'm changing. So I'm going to show you all three of these conditions uh, in a row here. So that's the continuous case, that's the reversed case, and that's the stop case. Let me see if I can show you that again. Here's the continuous case, the reverse case, and the stop case. So what you might have noticed is that what I'm doing here is I'm just displaying essentially, uh, I'm taking the data which I gathered from lots of subjects, I'm just sort of plotting it here. In the continuous case, you see the ring below the flash. In the reversed case, you see the ring above the flash. And in the stop case, there's no illusion at all. Is that what everybody saw? Did you all see that? No? Okay, wait. I'm going to do this again. So you see the continuous, reversed, stopped. You guys all... Okay. Every, <laughs> those of you who aren't seeing that, come see me afterwards. So, so I tested a whole bunch of people, and this is what, this is what everybody sees. And so it turns out... This is a very strange result because this rules out the idea of motion extrapolation, that, that you're just sort of seeing the flash ahead of where, you know, you're just uh, you're extrapolating ahead of where it is because everything up to and including the flash is the same, so you should see the flash this way uh, every time if that's what's going on. But somehow there's something weirder going on, which is that I'm asking people what they see at the moment of the flash but their answer depends on what's happening just in the future of the flash, what's happening after the flash. 
And so this was my first step in understanding something, which is that our perception of, of an event depends on what happens next, depends on what happens in the, in the near future. So when we talk about where awareness occurs, it's, it's not that we're guessing ahead, but instead it's more like, oops, sorry, instead it's more like we're, we're filling in behind um, after, we've, after we've seen something, then we fill in, this is the moment of the flash, you're filling in behind. Now, nothing's happening backwards in time here. The right way to do this is with two timelines. So you've got time in the world, and there's this event of, let's say, the flash here. And then you've got time in your head. And what happens is you see the flash later, but what's going on is that information that comes after the flash, all of this gets subsumed into what you think you see at the moment of the flash. And so, what does this mean? It means that in this weird way, we're not, we're not seeing things real time in the world. What, what we're able to see is that we live in the past. And, and so, I, I don't mean like this or like this, but, <laughs> but what I mean is when you, think, when you think the moment now occurs, it's already happened a long time ago. It's already, it's already passed by the time you think that you see it. For all you know, my talk might be over by now. Okay, it's not, it's not that far. But, but what it means is that signals in the brain take a, a large amount of time to actually get processed. And this is because of the speed at which signals come into the brain. And it's actually an extremely slow speed. Signals come into the brain, and they have to get processed and mushed around and so on. And then finally, you have this conscious experience, but it's always behind reality. And so what this means is that your perception of the world is like one of these live television shows, like Saturday Night Live, which is not actually live. They air this with a delay in case somebody cusses or falls down or there's a wardrobe mishap, that kind of thing. And so what you're seeing is not actually live. And this is the same with our perceptual lives. Um, so how far in the past do we live? Well, <clears throat> I did a whole series of studies, which I'm not going to show you here, but it turns out it's about... It's, it's about 80 to 100 milliseconds is how far in the past we live. But this is just for the flash lag effect. Um, this is just in, in vision. Now, there's something very significant about this, which is within the visual system, not all signals get processed at the same speed. Instead, you process bright signals at a particular speed and dim signals at a slower speed. And the difference between the brightest and the dimmest signals you can see is 80 milliseconds. And so what's happening is the brain is collecting up all of the information before it makes a conclusion about what it's seeing at some moment. It's collecting up everything from the bright to the dim information. So what I've suggested in the literature is that Mother Nature has carved out this, this window of time as the balance of two constraints, which is on the one hand, she wants to operate as close to the border of the present as possible. But on the other hand, she has to account for the way that things get smeared out in time based on just the mechanics of the retina and what happens from there. Um, so what this means is that the visual system waits to collect up all the evidence, bright to dim, before it concludes anything about what's happened in there. Now, Here's the really interesting part. What, this, what I just showed you is from the visual system, and that's this, this 80 millisecond. But how far in the past do we live in total? I mean, what's the, what's the total amount between here and here? I mean, we know that this gets incorporated into what you think you see, but how far is that distance? Well, what we have, and I'll show you this in a minute, but what we have is this unified percept of the world across all of our senses. 
But it turns out that our senses all process things at very different speeds. And somehow, our brain unifies all that, and when you think that the moment now is occurring with all of your senses, um, your brain has to wait to collect up all of that. So what's the slowest thing? The slowest thing is the signals from your toes, because that has to climb all the way up your spinal cord to your brain. So if I touch your toe and your nose at the same time, you'll feel that as simultaneous, but that's very weird, right? Because the signals from your nose get to your brain right away, and the signals from your toes have to travel up here. So the question is, when your brain registers the signal from your nose, does it say, okay, before I perceive that, I'm going to wait and see if anything else comes up the, the pipeline? <laughs> and the answer is somehow, yes, it's, that's exactly what it's doing. It waits to collect up all this information. And so because the brain waits to collect this up, this, this led me to a bizarre but testable prediction that, um, that tall people live further in the past than short people <laughs> because their brain has to wait to collect up all that information. I actually, I, I announced this and our results from this on NPR one day, and when I got back to my lab, I, I logged into my email, and I had dozens of emails from, from people who said, I'm short, and I really appreciate you saying that. So, that... <laughs> so, so it turns out that in total, on average, we probably live something like half a second in the past. That's how long it takes for the brain to collect up all this information from our toes and everything else and put this all together. And um, I was thinking about this recently, and, I, and, and the fact that your brain has to put all this together before you have any conscious experience of it leads to an interesting consequence, which is that if you, are, um, if you are walking down the street enjoying a coffee and something happens that causes your brain to suddenly cease like that, um, what it means is that before all the conscious signals come together, you're dead. Your brain's already squished. And so you won't perceive your own death which is really interesting, right? And it's not just true of something like, it's, it's not just true of something like this, it's anything that's faster than the signals can come together. So if you get shot in the head or get blown up with a bomb or something, you will disappear before you were aware of what happened because it takes half a second for your brain under normal circumstances to put this all together. And so that's the good news from science. Um, <laughs> So, and I think that this is what happened by, I mean, th this is what was captured in the final episode of The Sopranos. So, after eight seasons, this is the last, uh, you know, 25 seconds of The Sopranos right here. So, that was, I, for any of you who's, who's saw, who watched The Sopranos, how many people saw that and saw that final episode, right? So a lot of people were pissed off about that ending because they didn't know what had just happened. But it harkened back to something that had happened in season six when one of the characters said, you probably don't even hear it when it happens, right? Talking about when you get knocked off. And so what happened is Tony Soprano got a bullet to the back of his head in this final episode but all that you would experience if you were from Tony's point of view is that everything just stops. You wouldn't experience the gunshot and the pain and the whatever because your brain is already soup by the time that before the signals would come together. You wouldn't be aware of the last half second of your life. So your death might not be nearly as scary as you think. Okay. 
All right. Now, so what we've established so far is that you live in the past and you have signals streaming in from your ears and your eyes and your fingertips and so on, your toes. Um, now, here's the thing. The bigger problem is that the brain needs to figure out how to coordinate all these signals because they arrive at very different times and yet your perception is unified. So, so let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> so... Um, at the Olympics, when they're starting the, the runners, they use a gun to start the sprinter. So I, I did an experiment where I got a bunch of sprinters together and I started them with a gun versus a flash of light to see who, you know, how, how fast they would get off the blocks. Because we know that light travels faster, the speed of light is much faster than the speed of sound. And so it turns out that using a flash of light doesn't help. In fact, the sprinters get off the blocks about 40 milliseconds slower. Why is that? It's because your auditory cortex can respond to a bang much more quickly than your visual cortex can respond to a flash and then can send out signals to the motor system and down the body and you can get off the blocks. And this is why they use a gun. But here's the mystery. The mystery is that when I clap my hands, that looks synchronized to you. We know that the auditory cortex processes much more quickly than visual cortex. You can tell this from the physiology, too. You can dunk electrodes in there and measure that. But that looks like it's synced, even though, even though part of your brain is getting that information before another part. So your brain is going through a lot of trouble to actually sync things up. And I'll give you one more example of this, which is that in the, in the early days of television broadcasting, the engineers were worried about how they could broadcast the sound and the uh, visual signals and keep them synchronized with each other. And what they realized quite accidentally, and they wrote a paper on this in the 1950s, was that they don't actually need to keep them synchronized. As long as the sound and the visuals are within about 80 milliseconds of one another, your brain does all the work of syncing those up. And if you've ever seen something that seems out of sync, it means that it was more than 80 milliseconds out of sync because your brain can't tell the difference as long as they're within 80 milliseconds of one another. It seems perfectly synchronized to you. And, um, and I'll give you a way that you can demonstrate this to yourself, which is if you're watching some kids playing basketball, it'll seem like the basketball is hitting the ground, the, the sight and the sound of that are synchronized. Now, what you do is you start backing up. So you back up, you back up, they're dribbling, you're watching them, and it seems synchronized. The more and more you back up, it still seems synchronized until you hit 110 feet. And then it doesn't seem synchronized anymore. Then it seems off, uh, then, then the sight and the sound seem off. Why? Well, 110 feet is where the speed of light and the speed of sound are reaching you at over 80 milliseconds apart. So when they reach you at that level apart, then your brain can't sync it up anymore. But as long as they're within that window, your brain has no problem syncing it up, and that's what it does. Okay, so, um, so this is the question I turn to, is how does the brain actually actually do that. So um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you some uh, the various things that I explored here. Actually, this, this is, uh, that's an old list that uh, has been updated, but the, we've published lots of papers on this stuff, but I'm going to tell you about a few things. One of them is about the warping of time. I'll, I'll, I'll put this all together here in a minute. About the warping of time. What happens when something seems to go in slow motion like when you um, fall off of a roof? Um, also, what happens when you uh, make a saccade. So saccades are the, the rapid ballistic eye movements that we make about three or four times every second. Your eyes are always moving around the scene like this. And as they do, um, 
you actually, your visual system shuts down during the time that they're jumping, because otherwise it would look like the whole world screamed by. So you're not actually seeing anything while your eyes are moving around. And yet, despite these gaps in time, we never even notice it. We don't notice that there's, there's this gap. And one way you can prove this to yourself is very interesting. Um, when you get home, I'd like you to do this. So look in a mirror and look at your eyes. So look at your right eye, then look at your left eye, then your right eye, then your left eye. If, if you're watching someone else do this, you can see their eyes move, very obviously, their eyes are moving. But when you do it and you're watching yourself, it's instantaneous. You'll be looking at your right eye, then instantaneously you'll be looking at your left eye, and instantaneously you'll be looking at your right eye. You don't see the gap there at all, which is very weird. So, um, okay, so I'll talk, about, I'll talk about all these things, but the, part I want, the parts I want to get to are the issue of now, what happens when you get the motor system involved also? What happens when your motor system is part of this? And this is actually the secret to understanding how everything gets synchronized. So, let me, let me turn to this issue about how the brain coordinates its signals, meaning how does it know the visual and the, the touch and the, and the hearing, how does it put all those together and know the right order to put those in? So for, to, to answer that, I'd like to turn to the Mongol emperor Kublai Khan, who, who reigned from 1260 to 1294, and he founded the Yuan dynasty. Now, what he had done is conquered the largest kingdom the world had, had ever known. His kingdom reached from the Pacific to the Black Sea and from Siberia to modern-day Afghanistan. And uh, it was his, his territory actually covered a fifth of the world's inhabited area. So it was absolutely enormous. So, so he situated himself in what is modern-day Beijing. And the thing to note is that this was back in the day before iPhones and telegraphs and trains or any email, anything like that. So the question is, how in the world did Kublai Khan know his empire? How could he possibly, there's no way you could travel something this large by yourself in, in a short lifetime. How could you possibly know what your empire contained? So what he did is he hired emissaries like Marco Polo, and these emissaries would travel out to the distant reaches of his empire, and they would convey news back to him about what was, what was going on in the empire. And of course, he had many, many different emissaries that would always bring news back to him about what had happened. Now, I haven't ever heard a historian talk about this, but I imagine it must be true that Kublai Khan had a temporal problem because of wars and weather and other issues, the different emissaries would come back to him at different times and at different paces. And so what this means is that one emissary could come back and say, oh, a war has just ended. And another emissary comes back and says, oh, a war has just begun. And they're talking about the same war, but they got there at different times. And so the question is, how did the great Khan synchronize all these signals? How did he figure this out? And the same problem that the Khan has is the same problem that the brain has, which is to say it's always sending out motor signals and it's getting back all these different streams of information. So you've got somatosensory information coming back, you've got auditory, you've got visual information coming back to the brain. But the issue is that all of these things get processed by the brain at, at different speeds and at different places in the brain, and, and yet, somehow to us, everything seems synchronized. So the question is, how does that happen? How does it happen that when I do this, it seems like it's synced up? So what this means is that the brain is somehow pulling off major video editing tricks on all this stuff. 
And the question is why? Why does it matter to the brain so much for it to get all this timing right? And here's what I'm going to suggest the reason is. It has to do with causality. Because one of the most fundamental things that an animal does is figure out whether it was the one that caused something or not. And, and, and what it really comes down to is a temporal order judgment, which is to say, did I put out the motor act and then I got sensory feedback, in which case I'm going to take credit for having done that, versus I got sensory feedback and then I did some motor act, in which case I'm not taking credit for it. I had nothing to do with that if it happens the other way. But what we're talking often is tens of milliseconds is the only difference here. So, um, at bottom, this is the challenge that animals have to figure out. The reason this is a really difficult challenge is because the speed of sensory signals can change. So, for example, when you go from a, a bright outdoors into a dimly lit room, the speed at which your retinas are talking to your brain slows down by quite a bit. And what that means is that now your vision and your motor uh, actions are, are out of sync a little bit. So if right when you walked in the room I threw you a ball, you would miss it. You would be bad. I don't know if any of you ever play volleyball right when the sun's going down. You know, you're outside playing volleyball, everyone's having a good time. And then right as the sun starts going down, everyone starts getting hit in the face with the ball and so on. Because, because what's happening is your, your, your time is, is getting out of sync now. Um, and so on, on a longer time scale than that, I mean, there are all these short-term changes, but on a long time scale, when you grow from a baby to an adult, it takes a longer time to send signals out and, and to get signals back. And so all of this led me to think a while ago, somehow the brain is having to figure out what its expectations are. It's having to modulate on the fly how long it expects signals to come back. And on this, you know, on this long time scale, it changes things, but also on the short time scale. Because if you're playing volleyball at night, you know, once dusk hits, you can get used to it. After a few moments, you get used to the speed. It's just that as it's changing, your timing is messed up. And so somehow I thought, the brain is probably always doing this on the fly. It's always readjusting and recalibrating the expected time that it takes for signals to come in. But how does it do that? And what I reasoned is that it does it by interacting with the world. Because whenever you touch things, or you kick things, or you, anything you do like this, what you're doing is you're saying, to your, the brain is saying, okay, everybody synchronize your watches. I'm putting out a motor act, and what I expect is that I'm going to see it and hear it and feel it all at the same time. That's the, that is the prior expectation it comes to the table with. And if for some reason I hit it and it went like that, then my brain would adjust the timing. So in other words, your brain doesn't know a priori what your body is, how big it is, what the, the, the lighting level is, and stuff like that. So my, my hypothesis was, that, look, the best way to to predict the future is to create it, is to go out and interact with the world and do this, and that's how you constantly keep yourself calibrated because you know that when you're the one who did something, that everything should be synchronized with that. In fact, it's the only thing that you know everything should be synchronized with. So uh, I took this hypothesis and I created a very simple experiment, which goes like this. You hit a button, and that causes a flash of light. And that's it. There's just a single button. You hit it, flash of light happens, no problem. Then what we do is we, we inject a small delay in there, about 100 milliseconds, so that you hit the button, and then the flash of light happens. You hit the button, and then the flash of light. What happens very quickly is that your brain adjusts 
how that feels so that that comes closer to simultaneity. So that it doesn't feel like 100 milliseconds after just a, a, a couple of hits. It feels like it's closer to being simultaneous. Because your brain is the one putting out the motor act. It's it, exactly like this thing I said where if I went, your brain adjusts. That's what we're doing here with the visual system. Now, this is what happens. And then I pull a trick on it. Which is, now what I do after you've gotten used to this delay, I now present you a flash right after you hit the button. And what happens is, you think that the flash happened before you hit the button. <laughs> so you hit the button, a flash occurs, and you say, whoa, I didn't do that. It flashed just before I hit it. And this is kind of amazing, because what this is, 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 is a reversal of action and effect where you're the one doing something, but you no longer think you are because of this calibration in time that's always happening. And so um, that got me really thinking about something, which is that I'd seen that before. When I saw, you know, the first time I saw a subject say, whoa, that wasn't me, I thought, that looks really familiar. I've seen this before. And where I saw that was in, uh, uh, this, this, this is called credit misattribution. This is one of the main symptoms that we find in schizophrenia. In schizophrenia, people all the time do things and they don't take credit for it. They say, that wasn't me that caused that thing to happen. And then it's actually perfectly rational to cook up a different sort of explanation for it and say someone else is doing it, it's some you know, signal from a radio tower, it's whatever it is, but it's not me that did whatever's going on. And so I started thinking about this as a pathology of time. And so, um, and, and this made me think about another um, symptom of schizophrenia, which is auditory hallucinations. So under normal circumstances, we're always talking to ourselves. You, you have an internally generated voice, <clears throat> and you're listening to that. It, it's an internal loop, even if you're not using your mouth. But it struck me, what happens if you generate the voice, and before hearing it, you're, you're getting the timing wrong? Then you would hear it before you thought you generated it, and you would have to attribute that to somebody else. You'd have to say that's somebody else's voice because the timing is off, even just by a few milliseconds. <clears throat> and so um, we've been, this is something we've been testing in the lab for a while, and uh, what, we, what we find is that schizophrenics do not recalibrate. So when we give them the, the tests, this thing like where you hit the button and the flash of light occurs and so on, and we measure how much they recalibrate, they actually don't recalibrate. And so this is still, um, you know, this is work I'm going to be pursuing at Stanford now. But the issue is, if this is the right way to think about schizophrenia, this completely changes our approach to it. It means that instead of trying pharmacological solutions, which actually haven't been that successful, just imagine if you could give somebody a video game that they play for a few minutes, <clears throat> and then their auditory hallucinations go away. So this is the, uh, this is the work I'm going to be pursuing now that I've landed here, and I'll, I'll tell you in six months how that's going. So, thank you. So where we are so far, <clears throat> just to summarize that last part, is that, um, uh, whoops, is that the, um, is that temporal order is dynamically recalibrated. This is what I was showing you about how the brain has no reason to know what the timing should be, so it's constantly interacting with the world and recalibrating its timing so that that's always right, and that this is, is impaired in schizophrenia. So now I want to return to my fall from the roof, which is this question about 
what, what happened? Like, what exactly happened? Is it, is it actually the case that time ran in slow motion for me? Or was it something else that was going on? And so this is something that, <clears throat> you know, 80% of you raised your hand on. All of you have had some sort of experience where you feel like, wow, that took a really long time. It seemed like it took a long time. So <clears throat> people co very commonly report this. And uh, over the course of many years now, I've collected hundreds of emails of people's stories about this and what happened to them. But what I found in the literature was nothing. In other words, this had never been tested. Like, how do you actually test that? And it's not surprising it hadn't been tested because you can't stick subjects in a life-threatening situation to see what happens. <laughs> so I thought about what, what's going on here, and I thought, look, this, this probably boils down to two main hypotheses, which is that either during the course of the accident, you have a higher let's call it a time density, where, where things are more, you know, things are running in slow motion and you think that things are taking a long time. And the second hypothesis is that, in fact, it's not that, but it's retrospective recollection. There's something that happens during the event where you look back at that and you think, wow, that must have taken a really long time. So here's how we set about to test this. We, we built and we patented a device that we can uh, strap to people's wrists and it does the following. It picks random digits, like let's say the number four here, and it alter it's, it's a matrix of LED lights and it alternates which lights are on and off and it presents a number in there. So, um, you know, all, all these lights are on and the rest are off and then in the next moment these lights are off and these are on and they go back and forth like that. At a particular pace, you have no problem seeing that that's the number four. But if I tune it just a little bit faster than that, you can't see anything because all the, the positive and negative images blend together and you can't tell me which number it is. Okay, so what we did, uh, as I mentioned, is we built this and we strapped it to people's wrists. And we reasoned that if they were in a really scary situation and they were seeing in slow motion, then they should be able to see numbers that are running normally at a pace that's too fast that you would not ever be able to see normally. Okay, so now we just need to figure out how do we make them scared. <laughs> and so our first idea was, look, why don't we stick volunteer subjects in a life-threatening, terrifying situation? But because we're scientists, we always try to come up with a better idea. Um, but we never did, actually. So we went with the first idea, and we, we dropped people from, from, from a 150-foot tall tower in free fall backwards. So, uh, we, so here's, what, here's what it looks like. Here's what, here's what the experiment looks like. So. And they're caught in the net below, and they're going 70 miles an hour when they're, when they're caught in the net there. So that's the experiment. So... <laughs> yeah, talk to me afterwards. So I, so I actually ran this myself three times to, to make sure that everything was working and so on. I can report that it's equally terrifying all three times. <laughs> because you're falling backwards, which goes against every Darwinian instinct that you have. And, uh, and so it, it accomplished what I set out to do, which was to find something that was safe but completely terrifying. So what we did is we had people uh, watch somebody else fall and then estimate on a stopwatch how long that took. And then after their own fall, to remember their fall and estimate how long that took. 
and we found that people, on average, judge their own fault to be at least 36% longer. And the reason I say at least is because what happened with a lot of people is when they were remembering their own fall, they would do this, and then at some point they would stop the watch and they'd say, actually, it felt a lot longer, but I'm a little embarrassed to let the watch run longer. And so, nonetheless, it was, it was clear that there was a duration distortion there. It's clear that there was a duration distortion that was probably even longer than that. But the question is, was it the case that people were seeing in slow motion, like Neo? And so we compared the, so what we did is we asked people to report the numbers that were flashing, and we compared this to ground-based controls, the speed that they can see. And what we found is that people were actually no better at reporting the numbers than they were in a ground-based control. In other words, they weren't actually seeing in slow motion. So this was weird, right? Because we had this thing going on, but it was clear that nobody was able to perceive what was going on here. I mean, they were able to see just fine the numbers, except they couldn't see it any faster than they normally could. So what I realized is what is going on is the following. When you're in a life-threatening situation where everything's really hitting the fan, there's this other part of your brain called the amygdala, which comes online, and this is essentially your emergency control center. It focuses all the attention on the situation at hand, and it essentially acts like a secondary memory track. You're laying down memories through the amygdala. And so what this means is that you've got much denser memories about what happened. And when you read that back out, it seems like it must have taken a longer time. So in other words, time and memory are intertwined. So when you're in a car accident and you remember all these issues like, okay, the hood crumpled and the rearview mirror fell off and I was watching the face of the other guy and so on. It's because you're laying down this density of memories on this, on this secondary track and when you read that back out, even immediately, even, you know, what just happened, what just happened, what just happened, you read that out immediately and the way that we judge the passage of time has something to do with the, the density of memory. And so when you read that back out, your only conclusion is that must have taken a much longer time because I have so much more memory about it. So, when I published this, a lot of people said, no, that's bullshit. I know that it took longer. I know that this thing took so so I, just, so I said to people, look, when you were in a car accident, the guy who was in the seat next to you screaming, did it actually sound like he was saying, no? <laughs> because if it didn't, it means that time actually didn't slow down. And, and in fact, people had to admit that there was nothing like that going on. If your perception... <laughs> If your perception was like a movie and you stretched it out, then that's what would happen. But it turns out what's going on here is, is a trick of the memory. It has to do with reading out much denser memories and making the, the natural assumption that that many memories must equal a longer time. So, so what that means is that time and memory are, are inseparable. And this actually led me to understand something else, which is this question about why does time speed up as you grow older? Because when you're a child, you're, here's the scoop, when you're a child, you're figuring out all the rules of the world. You're figuring out how to operate in the world and what's culturally appropriate and what's socially appropriate and so on. And everything is novel to you. And so when you get to the end of a childhood summer, you've had so many experiences that are really new to you that when you look back how long it's been since, since uh, April, since you were in school last or something, it seems to last a really long time because you have so many memories to draw on. When you get to be old like we are, what happens is that you look back at the end of a summer and it's all kind of, you've been doing the same stuff. And so when you look back to try to remember what you just did the last several months, you've only got a few little highlights 
And so what you assume is, God, that must have taken a shorter time. It seems like just yesterday that it was April. But it's because of this issue of the intertwining of time and, and memory and how we make judgments about time. So um, what I'm not going to tell you tonight about is how to live longer, but I am going to tell you how to make it seem as though you can, you've lived longer. And, and that is by seeking novelty. So what I'd like, actually what I'd like you to do is anybody here who's wearing a wristwatch, who's wearing a wristwatch I'd like you to take your watch off and put it on the other hand. Yes. <laughs> now, this sounds stupid, but in fact, what happens is we automatize most of our lives. I mean, almost everything we do, we're, we're training ourselves to become really automatic about things. And the problem with that is that time disappears because, you know, you, you, just, you look at your watch, see what time it is. It's, it's a totally natural thing. It's like when you're driving home, um, from, you know, the first time you drive to your work and back, the very first time you do it, it seems like it takes a really long time, but after that, it starts becoming really automatic because you've automatized it, time shrinks to zero. I mean, you've all had this experience, right? The first time you drive there, you think, wow, this is far, and after a while, it takes nothing. Okay, what I'd like you to do is drive a different route home tonight. Make sure that you go a different route home and try to do this every day. I try to do this every single day. Just take a different route over to work so that I can get some of my life back so that I'm not an automated robot. Um, go home tonight and rearrange your office. Whatever's going on with your office, just rearrange it so you can see things differently. And, you know, of course, coming to things like Long Now Foundation events... Uh, allows you to inject novelty in your life, and so things seem to last longer. And when you look back at the end of today, it'll seem like a, you know, a richer than normal Tuesday, and you'll have lived a little bit longer. So the more novelty you seek, the better off you'll be there. Okay, so um, that's all I'm going to say before we do the Q&A, but you know, one way that I found novelty as a child was to fall from this height of a roof, and um, you know, that that 0.8 of a second really changed my life trajectory in terms of what I ended up studying and what my, my life work was. And, and so it's an ongoing passion of mine to figure out how the brain constructs reality from the brief now to the long now. So with that, let's move to Q&A with Stuart and Danny. Thank you very much. Danny, I remember when you were designing the duration of the tick in the clock, you guys had a discussion. You want to revisit that oh, for yeah. a minute? There's, there's an interesting um, design problem in the clock, which is it has a very slow pendulum. Yeah. And you want to hear a pendulum as if it has a regular tick. So there's some rate at which you hear something as a rhythm. Yeah. But if it slows down, there gets to some point where it starts just feeling like a leaky roof. <laughs> that it's sort of annoying. You, you, yeah. you lose lock. Yep. Is there any theory that actually... So, and, and, and one of the things, just experimenting with it, I sort of noticed it definitely depends on your state of mind. Mm. So that Actually, the clock we ended up adjusting down to seven and a half seconds because you can get in a state of mind where, where that becomes a tick, it becomes a rhythm, but yeah. it's not that unless you really slow down and calm down. Is yeah. that actually a different, I mean, is there a, 
Yeah, the general story is that your capacity to predict when the next thing is happening has noise that grows in proportion to the amount of time you're judging. So what, what that means is if I'm judging one second ticks, I, I know pretty precisely when the next tick is going to happen. But if it's seven and a half seconds, my judgment of exactly when it's going to happen is pretty smeared out. And it quickly reaches a point perceptually where it just it stops even feeling like a rhythm. This was years ago that we did this. I'd actually forgotten that, but I did some testing in my lab about what, what point people found the rhythm to, to, to go away. And what number did you I don't remember. That? I wish I remembered, yeah. Shoot. We can redirect, but, it, right? But, yeah, Sorry. we can redirect. That's right. <laughs> but we talked on the phone at the time, yep. and I mentioned what it was. So pr presumably the, the seven and a half seconds within that window, yeah. And so, what did you wind up with in the clock on that? Well, we ended up with seven and a half seconds, which is really kind of half that because mm -hmm. you kind of get some kind of a tick on each yeah. swing. So you sort of get half seconds. But yeah, it was 10 seconds was too long. 10 seconds was too long, yeah. yeah. But uh, go a little further, Danny. When it is the seven and a half seconds, which it feels like a long time between ticks, what does that do to experience time at that kind of tick pace? Well, what, what I thought was interesting was that it was different depending on how much you were focused on it. Hmm. So, and it sort of goes with your noise theory. If you're thinking of a whole bunch of other things, then you know, you, your mind goes off a different direction, so you have events happening, so your perception of time is varying a lot if you're, yeah. if you're thinking of other things. Whereas if you really clear your mind, you get much more uniform perception of time. Exactly and then right. you can lock into that rhythm. So it's almost a, it, it's almost a feedback situation that you've cleared your mind, you hear it as a rhythm. So yeah. it's inviting you to be meditative, basically, as you're climbing up the stairs at the clock? Well, I think it's after, after you get up there, because I think even climbing the stairs, there's enough going on that it keeps mm -hmm. you out of that state. When you sit in one of the little places, you realize there's a the steady tick. Yeah, I think it's, it's after you sit down, after you've gotten there and you're, you're waiting, you, just, you get into that. You know, there's, there's another consequence to that, which is interesting, which is that as we pay more attention to time, things seem to also take longer. I mean, we're, we're more focused, as you said, and we can judge a rhythm better, but also things seem to take longer, which is why a watch pot never boils, because when you're, mm -hmm. when you're thinking about time, it, uh, your attention is on that, whereas when you're normally busy and so on, time seems to fly when you're at a party and having fun, you're not paying attention to time. What I need to point out is it's different prospectively and retrospectively. So prospectively, if you are paying attention to time, things seem to take a long time and so on. But it's exactly the opposite retrospectively, which is when you, you know, when you get off an air, I just got off an airplane, and the ride seems so boring, it seems like it's taking forever. But looking back, I think the whole thing disappeared like that. I don't even remember it because of this memory issue. So, so yeah, that was the thing that a little bit weirds me out about your stuff, which is I have, <laughs> I have had this experience of you know, the car accident and everything seems vivid and you think of all these, your life flashes before your eyes and you, know, you imagine you're falling down the well with Alice and you know, all that. And what you're telling me is actually I'm perceiving that all the time, I just forget it. It's actually slightly worse than that. We, we, <laughs> You, you, you act, your memory under normal circumstances is like a sieve. You're not writing down most of what's happening. Right. So my life was much more interesting than I remember. <laughs> That's actually right. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, under normal circumstances, you're laying down very thin memory. And then when, in, when you're in an emergency situation, you're writing down lots of things. 
but under normal circumstances, the rest of the stuff just passes. Right, but I'm actually perceiving those things I'm just not remembering, so. It's not even clear that you're perceiving it, and that's because in an emergency situation, you're super right. focused on what's at hand, but you know, when you're walking along the sidewalk to get over to the dinner, you're not looking at how many cracks are in the sidewalk and what the person in front of you is wearing. You're, you're actually not even attending to all that. You're so automated in the way that you can just walk well, on the sidewalk that you're just living internally and but not paying much attention. But aren't you sort of slipping back into your other theory that you disprove? Because if you're saying if I am attending to more, it is sort of like I have more ticks in there. No, it's that you're laying down more memories. So you're focused on the situation at hand, and as a result of that, you're laying down more memories about it. And there's a reason so, to do it. As an emergency situation, I had a parachute fail once. And you know, I had eight seconds before oh, I was going to die. Oh god! You know, you've heard so many of these stories, but <laughs> <laughs> I still feel each one. No, it's actually kind of impressive but, you guys survived. Yeah. But the, the reason you cut into that dense time, the amygdala cuts in, is it is not only sort of registering this amazing thing going on, uh, it is trying to enact you to. Uh, put your hand out to stop your fall, in my case, to reach for the parachute and do the right thing with the reserve chute. And that is presumably the real reason the brain gives you this extra density when you're in an emergency situation, yes? It, almost. It's the, um, there's two things that are going on when this emergency kicks on. One of them is you're doing acts that are essentially pre-conscious. You can react to things even before you're consciously aware, because mm -hmm. consciousness takes a long time to... Actually, sorry, everything I showed about how long we live in the past, I'm talking about conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Unconsciously, you can react to things very quickly. The reason that you lay down more memory during mm -hmm. an emergency event is because that's what memory is for. You really mm -hmm. need to write it down when things are hitting the fan. In other circumstances, not so just... So we like to learn from later? Exactly right, exactly right. Really? That's when, you want, that's when you need to write it down. Well, now. So Matthew Arnold said something about um, quick memory, thy tablets. I learned to not do any more parachuting. That's <laughs> <laughs> Good. It works. So, so does the same effect explain, I mean, a lot of times athletes describe, like, just as I'm about to hit the ball, time slows down. Is that because it's important to them? And they're actually learning a lot at that moment? Yeah, pr presumably, yes. I've, um, I've talked to a lot of athletes who talk about things seeming to go in slow motion. I, what, what we did with our test is see if things are actually going in slow motion and they're not. But yes, I think for an athlete who's doing something very important like throwing the ball or doing the batting, in that moment they're completely focused on what's going on. And I wouldn't have thought that their amygdala would go off in a situation like that, but maybe when you're you know, maybe when you're being watched by 50 million fans and you're hitting the ball, it is a really stressful situation. Okay, here's a question from Robert May, which sort of jumps out of the short now and what you're pointing out about how the short now works to the long now. And he says, uh, long now is a temporal problem. And so what are some possible tactics that we might get? And what's the generational equivalent of using motor skill-driven events to synchronize experiences of reality across 30 or 300 generations. In other words, what can we learn from how the short now works in the brain to managing how we think about and operate in the long now? Got anything? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Um. Okay, so well, he's making well, the point me, about uh, the, the, the motor skill stuff that you're dealing with. Yeah. You're yeah. also informing the brain. And um, yeah, you know, we heard about John Lilly earlier today in one of the Ignite talks, and John spent the last few years in the deprivation tank. 
uh, presumably hallucinating. Um, and okay, so why do we hallucinate in a deprivation tank? We'll get back to the long now in a minute. Um, it's because your brain is relying on all these things coming in. It's, it's monitoring the outside world, but when that all goes away, it has no choice but to keep generating internal activity. And so, <clears throat> under normal circumstances, what you're seeing anyway is mostly internal activity, but it's anchored. It's anchored by what is dribbling in through these holes in your skull and what's mm -hmm. coming in here. So, uh, but what happens when you lock that off, it just goes off on its own. And that's what dreaming is at nighttime. You close your eyes, and you, you know, the system just goes off on whatever it wants to. And that's exactly what happens in a sensory deprivation tank. Okay, so you're talking about consciousness just now. It sounded like consciousness is even slower than, yes. than the sensory uh, detecting flashes and stuff. How much slower and why? <clears throat> it's probably half a second is how long it takes for consciousness to come online. And the why is because we put together a conscious story of what just happened, mm -hmm. and the brain seems to put a lot of effort into making sure it does that right. Mm -hmm. Okay, I did that, this came in, the toe and the nose were touched, all this happened. So you put that together as a story because that's what you use as a building block for planning mm -hmm. the future. You say, okay, well, I know this happens, I know that happens in the world, uh -huh. and so on, and that's how you, that's how you plan forward. So that it's always trying to cohere the world in time so that it can predict and get ahead of the game. Exactly. So the important thing is that, getting back to this amygdala issue, if, if suddenly a lion jumps out, we can, be, you know, we can be out of these chairs and running by the time we become consciously aware of, of what's going on. And we've all had this experience where you know, your foot is halfway to the brake before you consciously realize that there's a car pulling out of the driveway and so on. Your body can react very quickly to things because that's the important thing for it to do. And that but, doesn't get worse with aging, by the way, I've noticed. Good, yeah. <laughs> you should try parachuting again the, then. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. but the reflexes are there. Something falls off the table and I've got it before I knew it was falling. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of the amygdala reacting, that, its job is to get you out of a situation. But in mm. terms of conscious perception, that takes its time to put together the best story that it's able to of what happened across all these senses so that it can use that to plan other things. And presumably magicians know how to trick that whole process. Yeah, that's right. That, yeah, exactly. Although that tends to be more of a uh, distraction thing. So, you know, something falls, something, you're doing something while, while in the meantime you're doing something over here. Yeah. So it sounds a lot like consciousness is kind of in the same role as a, an historian is talking about history. Of, for instance, yeah, nice. it's really interesting how, hmm. you know, I, it always surprised me that the good guys always won. Until <laughs> <laughs> you noticed who was telling the story. Then you realize, well, who's telling the story, right? It, it, that's the, exactly right. <laughs> so it's going back, looking at the stuff that happens, taking all the knowledge between the events being described and the current events, and using that to interpret the events being described. That's exactly it, that's exactly it. I mean, the thing that weirds me out about consciousness is we are made of trillions and trillions of cells where these huge, massive creatures that are essentially being run by this three-pound mission control center up here, and it has to put together lots of data in order to tell us you know, how, we're, how we're interacting in the world. And so it, it keeps things at this level that, that we can understand and do something with, but at this very high level, as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to details of what the DNA is doing and the proteins and so on, and we don't have any access to that. I remember one thing you were looking at a few years ago when you gave one of these talks is you wanted to figure out what uh, happens when people, quote, wake up in the morning. Did you figure it out? No, nope, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> I, um, no, I mean, it, 
you may remember, actually, I wrote an article for Discover Magazine uh, called 10 Unsolved Mysteries of the Brain. And I listed what were like the main unsolved mysteries. And one of them was, why do brains sleep and dream? This is something we spend an eight, a third of our lives doing, eight hours a night. And we just, you know, we have very poor understanding of, of why we do this. There are lots of theories about taking out the neural trash and consolidating information. There's all sorts of stuff that we can say about it. But as far as why we're doing it, there's, uh, I actually have a new theory about that. But well, let's okay. hear it. Come on. Okay. Okay. Uh, the theory is this. <clears throat> There's, okay, so the brain is very plastic, and if you, for example, go blind, the other parts of your brain will take over what we call the visual cortex, now gets taken over by hearing and touch and, and uh, vocabulary and other things. Okay, the, the sort of new discovery that, um, that the field has made is that this actually happens quite rapidly. It happens so rapidly that if you stick somebody in the scanner with a very tight blindfold, in 90 minutes, you start, seeing, you start seeing the visual cortex respond to, to sound and other things. So the visual cortex starts getting taken over quickly. So that led me to hypothesize that maybe what dreaming is about is just keeping the visual cortex active at night. Because when the planet rotates around on the other side from the sun, you can oh, still something. hear and feel and smell and all that, but you can't see anymore in evolutionary time, historically. There's so it's defending itself against the auditory cord. Exactly right. Exactly right. It's a way of keeping itself going, so that's defending itself. So, so when you look at the circuitry of dreaming, it's this midbrain activity that plugs all this activity smack into the visual cortex. And that's what it's doing, is keeping the visual cortex active at night. And then the rest of the brain you know, is, a, is a storyteller, so it interprets what's going on there. But I think it's just a matter of keeping it alive. Why is it such a crappy storyteller? Yeah, good <laughs> It's so weird. We stick our, our heads in the night blender each night. And we just have these weird experiences. Okay, I've got two uh, mental aberration questions. One from Eva about the schizophrenia, except they don't recalibrate and they're testing. How, would, how does a video game going to fix that? Yeah, good question. Um, I, so this is what we need to figure out is, what, so what we were able to determine is simply that they don't, with, with hitting the button in the flash, they don't recalibrate normally. But our expectation is that if we train them up on this, you know, we do things like inject a delay very slowly and make it a larger and larger delay and do this slowly enough that we can get them to recalibrate. That's our expectation. And so if this is true, then we should be able to get to pull things slowly into shape so that all their, all their different sense organs are, are doing things at the right speed. And if this is right, then their, their hallucination should go away. Could you just you give them... Would you work with auditory signals since it's a voice? Yeah, signal? exactly. So we've done, yeah, thank you. So we've done this with um, touching a button which causes a, which causes a, a bang. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've done this with buttons and bangs and flashes at the same time and, and all these things calibrate to one another. Couldn't you just give them VR glasses and headphones and tactile sensors and actually insert all the delays and just straighten it out? That may be, that may be right. We might be able to do that now. We started this experiment back in the dark ages when we didn't have that, but that's a really good idea, yeah. So here's a OCD question from uh, either ITA or Ida. Uh, have you noticed interesting brain activity for people that are experiencing a victim of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder? This actually is not something that this that is. <laughs> 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 I, I'm sorry, Ida, but this, that's not my area of expertise, obsessive compulsive. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't looked at that. Send your obsessive compulsive. <laughs> okay, Nick Mann asks, in order to hit a baseball, you can't live in the past. Do we live in an expectation-fueled world? 
Yeah, the really, I mean, a, a baseball is a very interesting situation because the time it takes to leave the pitcher's mound and get to home plate is faster than you can be consciously aware of what's going on. Mm. So, uh, so he's exactly right about that. The, you, you start swinging the bat right when the pitcher is moving the arm and the pitcher releases the ball. And the best you can do is adjust your swing as it's going. Um, but the whole process is, is pre-conscious. So I played baseball for years, and my experience always was, um, you know, I hit the ball, and I, I, I say to myself, you've hit the ball, you idiot, throw the bat down and run. Because <laughs> by the time I'm consciously aware that the ball is, is going away from me, it's already, it's already happened, and then I have to go do something about it. So it's a completely unconscious, uh, pre-conscious thing that happens. And so this is when, you know, some sports and stuff like that, people are saying, don't overthink it. Don't yeah. get in the way of your own instant response. That's right, because a big part of what happens in sports is that you train for hours and hours to automatize the behaviors. Actually, when I played baseball, uh, our coach used to say, I want you guys to think out there. And I'd say, actually, you don't want us to think out there. <laughs> you want us to train a sufficient number of hours that we automatize these behaviors, and then we go out and just do our thing. But he didn't believe me, so I had to write books and make a television show about it. So. And, and that's how I was able to pull a reserve shoot because we trained for that endlessly in the army. I didn't yeah. have to derive it on the on the spot. Yes, died. exactly. Yes, exactly. So we're going to continue this discussion, but we're also going to invite the rest of the Long Now board that are here. Uh, please join us, and we're going to do a little. So we can continue a bit of this discussion, and then please keep the questions coming, and um, and we're going to we can move into a bit of the more broad. Uh, ask the board anything kind of questions. Um, and then we're just going to do this for a few more minutes, and then we're going to head over to the party portion of the and evening. Let's get the lights up in the house a bit. Yeah, so house lights, please. Same uh, and so first of all, I'd like to announce Catherine Fulton just joined our board uh, last month. Kim Palazzi, one of our re more recent board members, and Ping, uh, also one of our more recent board members, and Peter Schwartz. So. And so since you're the newest, Catherine, and you have a mic, um, I, <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask, what is it about Long Now that is, is interesting to you? What's, uh, what's attractive to you about starting to think about the long term? to get my... Yeah, this is the kind of why are you here sort of Yeah. Uh, um, is this... Is this... Yes. Is it working? Yeah. Um, that means I have to get my head out of the brief now into the long now. I'm not sure. I, that's, a, that's a big... Um, that's a shift. Um, so, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I certainly do struggle every day with the speed with which our lives are moving, and I think... I can't think of a... Uh, a more challenging and inspiring thing to do to figure out how we um, do the opposite of what we've been talking about here tonight, actually lengthen that amount of time. And as, um, uh, as you know, Xander, the, uh, I'm really interested, um, deeply interested in, in the pace layering um, model that Stuart has um, given us many, many years ago, I remember the GBN talk when, when that was first, when you first um, uh, showed us the pace layering. A lot of the projects of Long Now are um, about intervening and preserving and looking at 
nature and culture, the, mm -hmm. the lower parts. And I'm deeply interested in the ones in the middle uh, and, and governance. As we've been sitting here tonight, there's been a vice presidential debate. Um, governance, but governance for long now, governance in, in, in the society, um, and you know, how we look at and how we might think about the design of the social systems um, as well. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm feeling in, at the moment in a place of um, deep humility being here, and I think that's not a bad thing to take to that question. Well, we're excited to have you working on our governance question, as I mentioned earlier. Um, how we govern ourselves into the future generations is definitely at the forefront of what we're thinking. And um, Ping, we met each other uh, because you became a member, and I looked you up, and I was like, wow, this is an amazing person. And you, started, you did a lot of work in 3D scanning, and then we were just starting to figure out how to 3D scan uh, the the place in Texas, and I emailed you, and you said, all right, let's go. And so literally like a week later, there we were standing over a 500-foot hole with a custom-built laser scanner scanning the walls, and then eventually you became a board member. Um, and so I'm, I'm also interested into what was attractive to you uh, about uh, Long Now. Um, well, I was born in China, which is a country with a very long history. And I remember um, came to the United States, and people think 100 years old object is antique. <laughs> <laughs> and in China, even for 500 years old, is not antique. Um, so um, one of the things that I was always interested in is um, being able to think about uh, living in. Um, unlimited time and space. And so, so that's one of the things that's very attractive um, with long now, so long-term thinking. It's a not long and now, it's not just in the future. Um, the, the, actually, the Great War of China is a long war. It's not Great War, <laughs> um, if you do the direct translation. Um, so I, I always was interested in this concept of time and space. Um, and. I mentioned earlier tonight the initiative around education, um, and actually a lot of that was driven by Kim. Uh, and I know that um, the education space and long-term thinking has been something that you've been thinking about, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I think um, part of it is self-preservation for long now, and <laughs> that long now will not exist unless the next generation cares about long now existing. Uh, but uh, more broadly, uh, you know, I think more and more we're focused on, you know, the next election cycle, the next budget cycle, sh testing and, you know, K-12 is very short-term focused. Mm. And all the most important problems, societal, environmental problems, really require long-term thinking. And long-term thinking requires critical thinking and system-level thinking, problem-solving, being able to synthesize different disciplines, policy, science, and so forth. And that is that kind of curriculum is in short supply in, in K-12 and in, in, in education in general. Um, somewhat necessarily because of sort of the prescription of uh, the content in education today, but also, nevertheless, we can integrate long-term thinking in the existing curriculum. And so the question is, how do we do that? And you know, it's very clear that if you look at Revive and Restore and 10,000-Year Clock and All Species and you know, name all the Long Now projects, 
kids love this stuff. They get into it. You know, they love dinosaurs. They love long-term vision, visioning and imagining until we stamp it at them. And so the question is, <laughs> how do we integrate it instead of stamping it out of kids? How do we integrate long-term thinking and in so doing, help them, you know, prepare to be the leaders, you know, and the entrepreneurs of tomorrow? Thank you. And Peter, I know you just snuck out of Dreamforce uh, <laughs> to be here. No, thank you for, uh, for coming over. So you've been spending very much time in the now today. But I, um, your work in uh, the art of the long view and scenario planning was one of the very first things that really got long now trying to figure out its long-term future. And I know at one point we had talked about doing 5,000-year scenarios. I don't think we've gotten quite to that point yet. But I'm curious as to what you're, uh, where you're at in the working very much in the now uh, in your current job, which is a little bit different than, than what you're doing and, and uh, before, and um, how that fits in long now. Well, the, the, the truth is, uh, companies like, say, I, I'm, I now work at Salesforce, for those of you who don't know it, and apologies to all of you for disrupting San Francisco. Um, uh, it's a tank it doesn't touch town. us too much at no, this time. This part of town, it's okay. It's the other part of town is not too great. Uh, Companies like uh, Dreamforce, uh, Salesforce, and the uh, yeah, right. Companies like Salesforce, you know, are let me call them surfers of the present, right? But what they're also, you know, they're they're riding these waves. But the truth is that you've got to build the right surfboard for the right kind of waves. You need a long board, a short board, uh, and so part of my job is to think about how to build companies, how to build a company that actually can ride the successive waves of change that are coming along. You have to think about each of these waves. You have to think about what the nature of a business, a company, an organization, of technology, of competition looks like as you're riding each of these waves. Look, my uh, uh, CEO, Mark Benioff, whom I love, says, we don't do strategy at Salesforce. And I'm the head of strategy. Uh, <laughs> that's true. He says, tactics become strategy. We do tactics. Tactics evolve into strategy. So in a company like that, you don't actually do long-term scenarios. What you do is you figure out how to compete in a regularly rapidly evolving environment. And so that's what I help the company to do, is to figure out how we can surf better in a rapidly evolving surfing conditions. Gotcha. So it's a very different than your GBN work. And very different than Shell, for example, where it's right. 50 years. Thanks. And um, Kevin, you, you just recently gave a talk for long now in kind of the next year, the next 30 years of technology. And you've, uh, I know that you're the rule that you gave yourself for this current book tour was to only do podcasts or things that had podcasts uh, in them. Um, and I'm curious as to how going through that process, I think we caught you a bit at the beginning of it and now you've gone through that whole cycle, is what surprised you about talking to all the people about the future? Yeah, so um, I think one of the things that surprised me was, a, uh, was the, the questions I was getting again and again. And the kinds of even questions that were almost that I got from every uh, interview, and and they revolved around the, uh, what I can only assume is a legitimate and genuine concern about AIs taking all our jobs. That was the question that came up every single time, and um, I haven't figured out yet where that's coming or where that concern is coming from. Is it? Is it like people really are worried that they're not going to have a job in 20 years? Is it that they f have imagined what this world will be like and so therefore they're forming a hypothesis that is saying I should be concerned about this today even though it hasn't happened, which would be kind of a remarkable thing where people really are 
imagining future problems and trying to deal with it today? Um, or is it because they have heard other people um, worry about it? Or is it because of the, we see movies where this is a common scenario? But in any case, I was surprised by how common that concern was, because it was, I mean, I don't think that was a concern, a real concern maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Can I say something? Yeah. So I've been giving presentations the last few days, and I have this great quote from Time Magazine uh, about job loss and automation. And, and just to paraphrase, it's pretty close. It says, you know, automation has now become so profound, computing technology is moving so fast, that we can expect fully that many of the office and service jobs that we have today will soon be eliminated. And I, then I can say to the audience, well, most of you, of course, are unemployed, because that quote was from 1961. Right? <laughs> And that was uh, about the third wave of concern, and in between, we've had about two more since then. In 1950, approximately 60% of the working age population of America had jobs. In 2015, almost 80% of the working age population of a population that's now 330 million versus 160 million have jobs. There's nothing to worry about. <laughs> Kevin, I've got a question <laughs> relating to what Ping Fu was saying. You, you've uh, book toured for this book now. Yeah in the US, but also in China yeah. fairly extensively. Was there any sort of cultural difference in the questions and, and uh, uptake you were getting there? Yeah, that's actually interesting because it, that's not a common question in China for, for me. The, 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 the uh, questions in China were, um, in general, the most common question is um, a little bit more of how do we make this happen sooner? Hmm. Um, in, in the sense of not the, the AI. You're talking but, about slowing it down, they're talking about speed. Yeah, yeah, not the AI, but just like how do we bring all the things I'm talking about in my book, this kind of next 20 years, the, the uh, increase in uh, VR, the increase in screens and flowing. The, the, the Chinese are actually in, you know, they're replicating 100 years of development in, in a couple of decades, and so they're still in the transition from the manufacturing industrial age to this internet economy, which is very uneven, mm -hmm. and they want to know how, how we can actually extend this faster, better, rather than, um, you know, what happens when the uh, AIs take over. And so um, I think there is a cultural difference in just in the stage of where they are. Um, but so... Uh, this, uh, you know, Peter, it's true that automation, uh, the, the perils of automation is, is not new, but I think, um, I, I don't think people, I don't think the ordinary person was really concerned about that. Maybe some editorials, maybe some business people, but I'm detecting that in the general population. People really, this is a question I hear. I, I hate to tell you, but this is not the general population. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <They are>. yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. And podcasters are not the general population either. You're correct. Yeah. So, um, so I want to take this uh, brief opportunity to... Um, Thank all of you, especially Stuart, who took a chance on me when I was 24 years old to start uh, building this ridiculous clock and to work with all of you. It has, it has been an absolutely amazing 20 years, all of your trust in letting me do ridiculous projects from robots to flamethrowers to bars to whatever uh, has the been amazing. The board gradually learned not never to say no to Alexander. <laughs> <laughs>
because when we did, things did not get better, and when we didn't say no, things got better, even though we were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all. And I, I want to get everyone who's ever, I've, who's ever worked for long now to stand up in the audience, or I've ever asked for a favor, or I've leaned on. Stand up. Jim, you're here. Scout, you changed all our tires. Thank you, guys. Um, and I want to get all our staff to come out. Hopefully, they're here. Come on out. Um, this is... Make sure you're in the light. So, this is... This is all the staff that could actually walk away from the stuff they're doing. All our interval staff is still making drinks right now. They're working their asses off. Um, all the guys who are doing the events, um, all the people who build the clock, all the people who've ever micro-etched things into Rosetta Discs. There's uh, 40 people working 24 hours a day at the clock site, blowing stuff up right now, cutting with giant diamond chainsaws. Uh, and working away on CAD, and so this is a small sampling of all of those people. Um, they're all amazing. I've, uh, I love all of you guys, so thank you so much. And uh, one last round of applause for all these people. Thank you. And, I, and Ryan, please come up here. You're on staff. <laughs> A round of applause for Alexander Rose. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.